Let's turn this afternoon to Psalm 123. We're skipping over Psalm 122 because I preached on that about a year and a half or two years ago. Uh, And you can find that sermon if you want to uh, listen to it again on sermon audio. So Psalm 123, a song of ascents. Unto you I lift up my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their masters, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, So our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we are exceedingly filled with contempt. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorn of those who are at ease, with the contempt of the proud. What I want to do by way of beginning is uh, look uh, at the earlier Psalms and do a little bit of comparison between these, uh, this psalm and those previous songs of ascent that we've already seen. And I think one of the things that is kind of interesting to look at here is the, um, the uh, persons of the psalms. In Psalm 120, for example, we have a very personal psalm. It's all in the first person singular. In my distress, I cried to the Lord, woe is me that I dwell in Meshach. In Psalm 121, as we noted last week, he begins in the first person again, I will lift up my eyes to the hills, but he changes to the second person in verse 3. He will not allow your foot to be moved. In in Psalm 122, we have quite a variety, actually. He begins again in the first person singular, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. But he changes immediately to the first person plural in verse 2. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. And then he changes to the third person in verses 3 to 5. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to the testimony of Israel. He could have said where we go up or where I go up if he had wanted to. And in uh, verses 6 and following, he changes the person yet again. He first exhorts us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, second person. And then he addresses Jerusalem itself in the second person. May they prosper who love you. And here in in Psalm 123, he begins again in the first person singular. Unto you I lift up my eyes. But he changes again to the first person plural. In verse 2, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. So you get these interesting changes of person which show the broad, I think the broad applicability of these psalms to all of the saints of God, both in Old and New Testaments. We may also note about this psalm, 123, that it is in a way, another answer to the question of Psalm 121. From where, he says in verse 1, does my help come? Psalm 121. And here in 123, we see him looking again to the Lord for help. Unto you I lift up my eyes. In fact, this whole idea of seeking help from the Lord persists 
into Psalm 124 as well, if you look at that. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when men rose up against us, then we would have perished. So we're looking at this psalm then under the theme, lifting our eyes to the Lord our God. And we're going to have four points for this very short psalm. And we're going to look first at to whom we lift our eyes. Secondly, in what way, in what manner we lift our eyes. That's in verse 2. And then for what we lift our eyes. That's in the last part of verse 2 and verse 3, first part of verse 3. And then why we lift our eyes in the last part of verse 3 and verse 4. Now the words with which he begins the psalm, I lift up my eyes, are words that we find also in Psalm 121. I will lift up my eyes, he says in verse 1 of 121, and here I lift up my eyes. But there's a difference between the two. In Psalm 121, he says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. And we said last week that the point of this is that he is lifting up his eyes to the hills of Jerusalem. If we imagine a pilgrim on his way to the city of Jerusalem for the celebration of one of the annual feasts of the nation of Israel, he is lifting his eyes as he comes within view of the city of Jerusalem, lifting up his eyes to those hills, the place of God's dwelling, the place from which indeed his help will come. And he says, he confesses in connection with that lifting of his eyes, then my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. But here in Psalm 123, he says, unto you I lift up my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. And if we imagine him now in the city of Jerusalem, as we find in Psalm 122, our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Then we see him there in the city of Jerusalem. We see him perhaps even in the temple courtyard itself. And there in the temple courtyard, lifting up his eyes, not to the holy place or the most holy place, but to heaven itself, knowing that this house where he stands cannot contain the one who dwells above the heavens. He lifts his eyes, therefore, to the Lord, who is seated or who dwells in the heavens. He he describes God then with that phrase without naming him here in verse 1. And that phrase, O you who dwell in the heavens, reminds us first of the power of God, his ability to be the help that we need. And it reminds us in the second place that there is no help for us here on earth, that we must lift our eyes above the things of this world in order to find the help that we need. And there is in that, in the third place, of course, a humility that is proper to all our worship of the God before whom we appear, especially on the Lord's day. He is the one who dwells in the heavens, but we dwell on the earth. 
And we are too insignificant to claim any right to come into his presence, to call upon his name. We are there only by his favor and the acts of his kindness and mercy. And this prepares us, this attitude of humility then prepares us for what he says in verse 2 the ma- about the manner in which we come to the Lord. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their masters, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. He uses, of course, two metaphors there. The eyes of a servant looking to the hand of his master, the eyes of a maid looking to the hand of her mistress. But I think they mean essentially the same thing. I don't think the psalmist means for us here to, to try to find some nuance of difference and meaning between these two metaphors. They're meant to express to us the very same thing. And there's a repetition of the idea with a variation, of course, in the repetition in order to emphasize this idea of the manner in which we come. We come to the Lord our God, we lift our eyes to the Lord our God as servants lift their eyes to their masters. Now that's a very rich figure, I think. That figure of a servant lifting his eyes to his master. If you read the commentaries, you see all kinds of different ways of looking at this, and, and you could say about all of those different ways of looking at it, yeah, that, I think that's there, I think that's meant. What I've chosen to do this afternoon is to use Matthew Henry's way of looking at this, and he points us to six things that we can see here in this looking of the uh, servant, the eyes of the servant to the hand of his master. First of all, he says the servant looks to the hand of his master or the maid to the hand of her mistress, for that matter, for direction. We look to the hand of our master for orders. It's by the hand of the master, at least in part, that we know what he wants us to do. So we learn from his hand, his will for us. He may point somewhere and say go, or he may uh, summon us to his presence by his hand. His hand signals to us then his direction in the first place. And we look to the Lord our God then for our orders. What will you have us do? And as we're going to see as we work Further into this psalm, we look to his hand for orders in the particular circumstances in which we find ourselves, in the circumstances of trouble which are described later in the psalm. In the second place, a servant looks to the hand of his master for his needs. The servant has nothing of his own. His his clothing is not his own. His food is not his own. His family is not his own. His life is not his own. His time is not his own. There's nothing that he can claim for himself. He's completely subject to the will of his master. And he depends on his master, therefore, to supply for him everything that he needs for his life. 
And this is the way we look to the Lord our God as well. We look to him to supply all our needs from day to day. A servant looks to the hand of his master for assistance. A couple of the commentaries I read point out that in those days, a servant was not allowed to carry a weapon to defend himself if someone would attack him. He wasn't uh, allowed to uh, retaliate against a superior, and almost everybody in the world was a superior to him. And so he depended on his master for assistance of any sort. He had no resources of his own on which uh, he could depend. All of his assistance had to come to him from his master. And therefore also, as Henry points out, he looked to his master for protection. He couldn't find this protection in his own strength. He didn't have the kind of strength. He didn't have the kind of standing in society which would allow him to protect himself. He relied entirely on his master. Somebody, somebody falsely accused him. Only his master could defend him against that false accusation. If somebody attacked him, only his master could defend him against that attack. He looked to his master for correction. This is another thing. Sometimes when the servants knew that they had done wrong, they would see in the gestures of the master the master's intention toward them, the master's purpose of chastening. So we look to the Lord our God for correction, perhaps not with anticipation of that correction or desire for that correction, but nevertheless with expectation that that correction may well be coming to us. And finally, a servant looks to his master for his reward. He may have to say, At the end of the day, I've only done my duty. And we certainly have to say that with respect to the Lord our God. And yet he has promised a reward. A reward that we don't deserve and that we have not earned. And yet that he gives us. And so we look to his hand also for our reward. So in all these different ways, a servant looks to the hand of his master for directing, for supplying, for assisting, for protecting, for correcting, for rewarding. And in all these different ways, we look to the hand of our master, to the Lord, our God, for direction, for supply of needs, for help, for protection, for correction, and for reward. But the psalm, of course, in the next part, the last part of verse 2 and the first part of verse 3, becomes very specific about what it is we are looking for. Until he has mercy on us. And then again in verse 3, have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us. Now that word mercy there in all three of those instances is really the word for grace until he is gracious to us. The word in the Hebrew is hanan. Until he is gracious to us. Be gracious to us, O Lord. Be gracious to us. And that word communicates to us the same thing that uh, the New Testament word for grace communicates to us. 
the idea of the free, unmerited favor of God, and all the many, many blessings, spiritual blessings in heavenly places that are in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the grace we seek from his hand. Again, not something we earn, not something we merit, but something that he gives us out of his abundant goodness and kindness. But there are two details about that that we should notice. The first thing we should notice is that word until. Our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. That's a very important word in the psalm because it implies, doesn't it, that when we seek this grace of God, it's not necessarily given to us immediately. The thing that we want may be withheld from us for a time. Just as a master may for a time withhold good from his servant for whatever reason, to instruct his servant in certain ways, to chastise his servant in certain ways, for whatever reason, just as a master may for a time withhold from his servant the good that his servant desires and even needs, so the Lord our God may withhold from us for a time that good that we seek from his hand. And it becomes our lot then to wait patiently for him. We look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. And the second thing we ought to note then is that immediately afterwards he turns this uh, uh, desire for mercy or grace into urgent petition. Be gracious to us, O Lord. Be gracious to us. A prayer twice repeated. In such a short psalm, that's quite a remarkable thing that he repeats himself. But he never quite repeats himself in the same way. He always varies his repetition a little bit to add something to what he has already said. So here we have that, until he is gracious to us, and then the the repeated prayer, be gracious to us, O Lord, be gracious to us. And then finally, in the last part of verse 3 and in verse 4, the reason, the why of all this lifting of our eyes and this crying, for grace. Again, notice you have repetition. For we are exceedingly filled with contempt. Our soul is exceedingly filled with scorn and contempt. There's a strong emphasis then and a, a great sense of urgency in this prayer for the help of our God. Now, what we want to do then is next is look at the details of that 
description of the enemies. It's very clear that the psalmist is in trouble, that the people of God are in trouble. In fact, it's the first person plural here. And that they are seeking help from the Lord in that trouble. It's also very clear that this trouble is trouble that comes from enemies. But there are uh, two descriptions of the enemies with which I want to begin. He calls them first those who are at ease, and then he calls them the proud. They are those who are at ease. Now that idea of being at ease if you look at the scriptural uses of the word, really means to be at ease in one's mind, to be secure in one's mind about the future or about the present circumstances or whatever it may be. You have that, for example, in Job chapter 12, verse 5. A lamp is despised in the thought of one who is at ease. It is made ready for those whose feet slip. And you you see the idea here. This is someone who has to go on a certain path, and he is at ease in his own mind about the safety of the path, about his knowledge of the path, about where the path is going to lead him, and so on. He's comfortable, he's secure, and he says, I don't need a lamp, I don't need any help, I can do this thing. I'm at ease about it. It's the man who's not at ease in his own mind about it who needs the lamp, the man whose feet are ready to slip. And this being at ease, then, in one's own mind, can be a good thing. We uh, turn for an example of that, two examples, actually, to the prophecy of Isaiah. First, Isaiah 32, verse 18 Isaiah 32, verse 18, where God says to his people, My people will dwell in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. That's the kind of being at ease that um, is positive, but it's the same kind of being at ease in one's mind as well as in one's outward circumstances. And then uh, also in chapter 33, verse 20, look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed, nor will any of its cords be broken. So there you have a, a being at ease that is very positive. But then, on the other hand, there's a being at ease that is a very negative thing. And you can, if you stay with Isaiah 32 for a moment, go back to Isaiah 32 for a moment, you can see an example of that too. Isaiah 32, verses 9 and 10 and 11. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech in a year and some days. You will be troubled, you complacent women, for the vintage will fail, the gathering will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Be troubled, you complacent ones. Strip yourselves, make yourselves bare, and gird sackcloth on your waists. So these 
daughters of Zion are complacent. They are at ease. They are at ease in their own mind. They are at ease about their way of life. They are at ease about their relationship to God. Either they think that God approves of them or they have convinced themselves that there is no God or that God will not punish them for their sins or that there is plenty of time for them to repent of their sins at some later date because God is delaying punishment. They have uh, convinced themselves that they can be at ease. And this is the way with every wicked man, right? He must always persuade himself to some extent that God is not going to deal with his sins, that he can be safe for the moment in continuing in his present way of life. And that's the kind of being at ease complacency that this psalm is talking about. When he says, uh, he talks about the enemies who are at ease. They are at ease in their relationship to God. They are at ease in their behavior towards the people of God. They think that they're safe in that behavior. They think perhaps even that they are doing God a favor in that behavior. And so there's no anticipation of, of judgment. There's no anticipation of the anger of God. There's no uh, terror of coming judgment or coming trouble. But it's all false security. It's all founded on sand. And as soon as God begins to act, they will be terrified and call to the hills to fall on them. So these are the ones who are at ease. And the people of God here are looking at their enemies and saying, how can they be at ease? They're attacking the people of God, attacking the righteous, attacking them because they are righteous. They are doing wickedly and yet they are comfortable, they are secure, they are safe in their ways and they have completely convinced themselves that no judgment is coming. And then also he calls them the proud. Now as I mentioned before, the Hebrew has quite a range of words for pride. But this particular word is a, is a word that means really to be lifted up in triumph. It's used in a very positive way in Exodus 15 verse 1. Exodus 15 verse 1. This is the song of Moses and of the children of Israel. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. That's our word. For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So he's lifted up in triumph. But this again can be a very negative thing. If you turn to Jeremiah 48, verse 29, you see the negative side of this being lifted up in triumph. This is in the prophecy of Jeremiah against Moab. We have heard the pride of Moab. He is exceedingly proud of his loftiness and arrogance and pride and of the haughtiness of his heart. There are at least four words in that um, verse alone about the pride of Moab. And if you go back a few verses, you see that this pride, this being lifted up, is uh, described in some detail. Verses 26 and following. Make him drunk because he exalted himself against the Lord. 
Moab shall wallow in his vomit, and he shall also be in derision. For was not Israel a derision to you? You see, he's exalted himself against the Lord. Israel is a derision to him. He's lifting himself up in triumph against Israel and against the Lord. Was not Israel a derision to you? Was he found among thieves? For whenever you speak of him, you shake your head in scorn. That's the pride of Moab. That's the kind of pride that we have here as well. In fact, of course, in, in, when we go on to consider the rest of the verse here in Psalm 123, we read about the scorn and contempt of these enemies, these ones who are at ease and who are proud. They are scornful and contemptuous of the people of God. As examples of of the contempt of the wicked towards the people of God, we can look first at 1 Samuel 17, verses 43 and 44. 1 Samuel 17, verses 43 and 44. And this is when Goliath the Philistine first sees whom the people of Israel have sent out to be their champion against him, that youth who's not even armed. He says, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. He's completely contemptuous of David. And if you turn to 1 Samuel 20, verse 30, you see another example as, as Jonathan, the son of Saul, is defending David with his father. Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Now therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Saul is completely contemptuous of his own son, calling him the son of a perverse, rebellious woman. That's the kind of contempt, then, that we complain of here in Psalm 123. A contempt of the wicked for the very righteousness to which God calls us. And then you have also the word scorn. And again, I think some examples of this are helpful. Second Chronicles 30, verse 10 is an example. Second Chronicles 30, verse 10. Hezekiah sends uh, messengers out to the northern tribes, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom who were not, of course, under his rule, but he sends them there to invite them to come to the Passover feast that he and the people of Judah are preparing in Jerusalem. And we read, So the runners passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun, but they laughed at them and mocked them. They scorned the messengers of Hezekiah. 
Or you can look at Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 19 for another example. The plans of Nehemiah and the leaders of the people in Jerusalem to rebuild the wall have just become known. And when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? And later on, one of these men, I think it's Tobiah, says, if a fox would climb on the wall which they're building, the wall would fall down. That's the kind of scorn they have for the righteous work of Nehemiah and the people of God. And most tellingly, then, another example in Psalm 22, verse 7, the psalm of the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ, beginning at verse 6, But I am a worm, and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him, let him deliver him, since he delights in him. That's the scorn, then, of the wicked for the righteous one. Now this contempt and scorn that we feel here in Psalm 123 is very severe. We are exceedingly filled with contempt. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorn of those who are at ease, with the contempt of the proud. As we endure the scorn of the world, as in fact that scorn and contempt of the world are increasing in our own day, this will and should be increasingly our prayer. Be gracious to us, O Lord. Be gracious, for we are exceedingly filled with contempt. And we should not be discouraged by that scorn and contempt of the world, because the one to whom we lift our eyes is he who dwells in the heavens. Remember that our Lord endured the same scorn and contempt especially at his trials. They blindfolded him. They struck him with their hands. They spit in his face. They clothed him in scarlet. They pressed a crown of thorns on his head. They bowed the knee to him, mocking, Hail, King of the Jews. They struck him with the reed that they had first put in his hand as a mock scepter. They poured their scorn and contempt on him, and they continued at the cross. Even the Jews cried to him, You trusted in the Lord? Let him deliver you now, if he delights in you. But our Lord did not revile them in return, but instead committed himself to him who judges and who is faithful to all those who put their trust in him. And he set us an example of the kind of prayer that we should utter as we are scorned and and held in contempt by our enemies. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
but by his enduring of scorn and contempt on our behalf. He has taken away from our enemies the power to do us any harm, the power even for their scorn and contempt to harm us. And he has delivered us from that scorn and contempt. And so today, now at this time, we lift our eyes to him who dwells in the heavens. As the eyes of a servant look to the hand of servants look to the hand of their masters, and as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he is gracious to us. His salvation is coming. May God bless his word for us.